On the 3rd of September 1939, Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies addressed the nation. Fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you officially that in consequence of the persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her and that as a result Australia is also at war. Australia's involvement in the war was inevitable, just as it had been a generation earlier. But unlike World War I, where fighting was concentrated in Europe and Asia Minor, Australians spent much of World War II fighting closer to home, in the Pacific and East Asia. It was here that the Japanese had invaded territories such as Burma and Indochina, which were ruled by Britain and France respectively. Despite the eventual defeat of the Japanese, the Age of Empires was all but over. Two and a half decades later, when Menzies, again in his role as Prime Minister, saw the Aussies go to war. This time, it was about protecting Vietnam, a sovereign nation that a generation earlier had been part of the colony known as French Indochina. The map had changed, and the threats facing Australia and its allies had changed, from fascists to the spread of communism. In this episode, I speak with the award-winning author and historian, Dr. Ian Hodges of the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs about his country's experiences in Vietnam. Despite the breakup of the British Empire across Asia, the Caribbean and Africa, Australia, like Canada, retained the British monarch as head of state. In the early 1950s, Robert Menzies was keen to emphasise the closeness of the United Kingdom and Australia. Australia, some people say, is trailing at the heels of imperialist America. All I need say is that Australia is British and has a great and tried and common family allegiance. Despite these views, Australia's role in the world and its relationship with Britain was starting to change as Dr. Hodges explains. Menzies was considered a, a massive Anglophile, and he was, in the early part of his long reign as Prime Minister, he was very well supported, he was very popular. He remains our longest serving Prime Minister. I think he was in office for about 16 years. And so he got us into Vietnam and was Prime Minister all the way through to the sort of second half of the 1960s when he finally gave up. But he was seen very much as an Anglophile. But the situation had been that in the Second World War, with the fall of Singapore, Australians had realised that they could no longer rely on Britain for security in the region that Australia is in in the world. Before then, it was always thought and understood that should Australia come under attack, that the Royal Navy would come to our rescue. With the loss of the Royal Navy's fleet base at Singapore and the shock of that, the shock of the Japanese marching through Southeast Asia, getting almost to the Australian mainland, conquering all the European powers that had colonies in Southeast Asia, defeating Britain easily in Malaysia and Singapore, caused a rethink in Australia. And we began looking to the United States, who during the war poured many, many hundreds of thousands of troops into Australia. And so it became obvious that, in fact, the best guarantee of our security in this region was no longer Britain, it was the United States. But after the Second World War, as I understand it, the United States' main concern was with the North Atlantic and Europe, less so in Asia in those immediate post-war years. 
And so Australia entered two more conflicts in Southeast Asia under British direction, and they were the Malayan emergency and Indonesian confrontation, where Australians fought both of those campaigns under British command and under British direction. It's the last time that ever happened. Australians have never again gone to war as part of a larger British force. The Indonesian confrontation, which ended in 66, was the last time that happened. And by then we were also in Vietnam with the United States. And ever since then, we have gone to war generally with the United States. The United States, Australia and New Zealand entered into a non-binding alliance called the ANZUS. Based on the geography, that indicates a shared concern about the Pacific. But within that realm, North Vietnam is a long way from Australia. So did the Australians perceive a communist regime in Vietnam as a tangible threat to Australia? Australia got into Vietnam at a time when the biggest concern in this country as far as foreign policy and the threat of foreign conflict went was actually Indonesia. In the early 1960s, up to 64, 65, Australia was far more concerned about the possibility of a conflict with Indonesia, particularly along a common border on the island of New Guinea. The east of the island was Australian mandated territory and the west of the island was Indonesian territory. There were considerable fears that there would be an escalation of fighting along that border and that we would come into conflict with Indonesia. What people didn't know at the time was that we were already in conflict with Indonesia in confrontation and Australian troops were fighting Indonesian troops in Indonesian territory on Borneo. And these were highly secret operations and nobody knew of it at the time. People knew that we were involved in this confrontation with Indonesia, but they did not know that Australians were fighting Indonesian soldiers on Indonesian territory. Australia had this concern about Indonesia. They'd always been aware of what was happening in Vietnam, but it was felt to be a little further away. And our main concern in that period was Malaysia and Indonesia. We, in fact, introduced conscription at the end of 1964, early 1965, not because of Vietnam, but because the armed forces felt a need to be strengthened in case of conflict with Indonesia. What happened was the Americans had said to Australia that the United States would support Australia if Australia was attacked by Indonesia, and they meant a full-scale military attack, not guerrilla warfare, not some sort of insurgency, a full-scale military attack that the United States would support Australia. But in return for that, the United States expected Australian support for their policies in Vietnam. And so in 1962, when the United States had something in the order of 10, 11,000 advisors in Vietnam, we sent 30. We sent a group of military advisors and they were known as the Australian Army Training Team Vietnam. And they arrived in Vietnam in July, August 1962. It was a very small commitment, almost you could say sort of the minimum that Australia could do to demonstrate support and to help the United States give the impression that it was more of a sort of global effort than it in fact was. So Australia became involved in Vietnam, not because of a a serious concern about Vietnam in this country at the time, but more because of the need to keep America on side and to have American support for what we were doing vis-a-vis Indonesia. So that's kind of where it started for us. And from there, we expanded our commitment until 1966. We had a task force over there. In your book, He Belonged to Wagga, which we discussed in a previous episode, you talked about the veterans returning from World War One. And it was that conflict, obviously, that compelled the Australian government to form a professional national military for the first time. The Aussies obviously then played a major role in that conflict, as well as World War II. 
So by the time we are on the verge of the Vietnam War, almost 50 years later, how substantial was the Australian military? To give you a sense of that, by the mid-1960s, the government introduced conscription to bolster Australia's military force, again with the idea that the threat was coming from Indonesia. So after World War II, there'd been a mass demobilisation. There were fewer people in the armed forces than there had been after the Second World War. And they were sort of a professional cohort, but it was not a large military force. And that's why we introduced conscription to bolster the numbers, particularly in the army. When the conflict began, what was the perception of Joe Public? Did people back home see this as a war that Australia should get involved with? Well, there was a certain amount, a strong amount of support for any anti-communist campaign. So Australians were not especially concerned when we started to become involved in the Vietnam War. As I said, we were sending only 30 military trainers. They were forbidden from participating in combat operations for the first two years that they were there, which dented their credibility in the eyes of the people they were training. But they were regular soldiers. They weren't conscripted. They weren't sent to Vietnam against their will. It was a small number of regular troops being deployed to do a job in a place where communism was a threat and for which Australians were were generally quite supportive. I'm curious if there was a strong Asian lobby in Australia at that time, comprised of expats from Vietnam and neighbouring countries such as Cambodia and Laos that were also caught up in the broader conflict. Was that something that occurred there with expat Asians in Australia? No, not at all. No, Australia wasn't like that. We had the white Australia policy and the idea being to prevent people of colour and Asian people coming to Australia. We did have an Asian population, but they were almost all of Chinese extraction, and many of them could trace their heritage in this country back to the gold rush in the 1850s. But there was not a large Indo-Chinese community at all, and certainly not large enough to have any influence. That didn't come about until after the Vietnam War, when there was an influx of refugees from Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos. During the war and in the period Australia was becoming involved and ramping up its involvement, there was no lobby of that nature at all. It has often been said the Vietnam War was the first televised war due to the level of access news reporters had, for better or worse, to the events on the ground. Reports of atrocities, the level of violence and death, obviously in America, helped to drive the anti-war movement as the war progressed. Was it viewed through the same prism in Australia? You've got to remember, we're behind America with a lot of this stuff. For example, we didn't get colour television until 1975 in this country, but certainly people had televisions in the second half of the 1960s and people were able to see what was happening in Indochina on the news every night. It wasn't like it is now, obviously, where there's 24-hour channels, but people could read in the press, they could see on the news, they could hear on the radio, and they were in touch with people in Vietnam. And so they had a degree of understanding about what was happening there and how the war was being fought, and ultimately that led to the view that the war was being lost. The Vietnam conflict ended up becoming Australia's longest war of the 20th century. Did that impact the public perception in the sense that people may have felt like it was a war that was just endless, going on and on without any signs of a successful resolution? Not so much in the sense of the length of the conflict. The Australian Army training team Vietnam that I mentioned were the first unit in and the last unit out, and they were there for about a decade. 
So, you know, World War One was four years, World War Two was six years, Korea was three years. The Malayan emergency for Australia wasn't a decade. It ran that long, but Australia wasn't involved directly for that long. And confrontation was three or four years. And so then you have this slow ramping up of a commitment to Vietnam. But no one at the time could have known that. Nobody at the time could have appreciated that the war would last a decade. Nobody knew how it would end or how long it would run for. And by the time it was coming to an end, there were massive protests in the streets and it was clear that Australia's commitment was ending. So I don't know if people at the time sort of viewed it as being our longest war. You have to understand a lot of people didn't really become engaged with the anti-war movement or with, with the war in general until the second half of the 1960s when Australians had already been there for several years. There was never a sense that it was our longest conflict. People, I don't think, thought about that at the time. It's something we as historians and, you know, in the Department of Veterans Affairs now talk about it being our longest war of the 20th century, but I don't think that was so much the talk at the time. You mentioned earlier that the government had introduced conscription, and it's been well documented when the same thing happened in America, there was a lot of resistance to conscription. I've seen some reports of Australians burning conscription cards. But was there widespread resistance, or did most people simply comply with the orders? The larger protests came later, and at the beginning, as I said, conscription wasn't introduced for Vietnam, and people didn't make that link. I think that our first conscripts were actually sent to Borneo, but a small number, and soon came to be overshadowed by the number going to Vietnam. So when conscription was introduced, yes, there were people who were against it, and they were sort of the beginning of a nascent anti-war movement. But there's also a difference between being anti-conscription and anti-the war. People might still think that it's a good idea to send troops to Asia to fight communism. Australia, after the Second World War, with the fall of Singapore and the threat from the Japanese, developed a doctrine called forward defence, whereby military and senior government officials believed it was better to defend Australia far from our shores rather than waiting for a threat to materialise here. And so people were generally in favour of the commitment to Vietnam But over the years that followed, as more and more conscripts were sent and as more and more conscripts started to be killed, that really set off an anti-conscription and a stronger anti-war movement. About half of Australia's dead in Vietnam were conscripts, and the first of them were killed in 1965, and then it became a steady flow. Conscripts make up half a platoon they're going to make up half of the platoon's casualties. The public over the years of the Vietnam War became more and more opposed to conscription, and particularly after Tet in 1968, more and more opposed to the war in general. We did have people burning draft cards and people dodging the draft, willing to go to prison. Some people did go to prison rather than be drafted. Some people went into hiding. Some people burnt their cards publicly. So there were a lot of people eligible for conscription who were against it, and refused to have anything to do with it. But equally, there were a large number of people who just accepted it. And you speak to veterans who go, you know, I was young, I was 19, I was 20. You know, I didn't really have a plan for my life. The army said, you're coming to us. And and I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll just do that. It wasn't as unpopular in the beginning as people might think, and it became more unpopular. But there were always conscripts who, if not happy to go along with it, were willing to go along with it. And some of them ended up joining the regular army. And there's also large amounts of evidence that once someone had become a conscript, been through their military training, posted to a unit, 
they became indistinguishable from regular soldiers anyway. And there was not a view in this country that conscripts and regular soldiers were at odds in any way. Once they were in Vietnam, they were part of a team, they served together, they experienced the same conditions, and there was no telling them apart. Regular soldiers didn't make anything of a man being a conscript, and likewise, it didn't go the other way either. So there wasn't that sort of tension within the military, but there certainly was tension within society, and more and more people turned against it as the war went on, as conscripts became casualties. The injustice of that started to be understood by a lot more people. Over the course of the conflict, about 60,000 Australians served in Vietnam. When their tours of duty ended and they came back home, what kind of reception did they receive? There were a range of receptions that veterans got. A lot of Australians who went to Vietnam travelled to Vietnam on a converted aircraft carrier, HMAS Sydney, which had become a transport vessel. And if you served with your battalion through a tour of 12 months, usually that battalion would come back on HMAS Sydney, attend a 12-day voyage back to Australia. And when the ship docked, within a few hours, the veterans who had just returned were given a march through whichever capital city the ship had docked in. And they would be met by dignitaries and they would have a march through the main street. There'd maybe be ticker tape and there would be crowds of people cheering them. And every battalion that came back from Vietnam got that. So in the first instance, they were generally welcomed. There was one incident where a protester covered in red paint ran out and grabbed one of the officers leading one of these parades and made her protest that way. But that didn't happen routinely. That was quite a rare event. Mostly the battalions that came back on HMAS Sydney were welcomed and given a parade, then given their post to a leave. But there were also reinforcements and smaller groups of men who came back piecemeal and they came back on generally a Qantas flight that left Vietnam in the morning and landed in Sydney in the evening. There's a, a curfew at Sydney airport of 11 p.m. So with one or two exceptions in a matter of just minutes, most people who came back from Vietnam by aircraft were in Sydney late at night about 11 p.m. And many of them remember it as if they were sort of being hidden away from the public to avoid protests and sort of sent on their way when they got home. And certainly if you were a conscript, that was often the case. So you had done your 12 months training, you'd done your 12 months in Vietnam and your obligation was over. And so you could come back from Vietnam and basically be discharged from the army and sent on your way and good luck. That right. experience is obviously very different from coming home with a battalion, having a parade if you're a regular soldier, continuing your military career. For conscripts, it wasn't like that at all. Also, as the war went on, the war was becoming more unpopular, and many, many veterans to this day talk about being treated very poorly when they got home, being spat on, for example, being called baby killers, the sorts of things that you would probably hear in the United States. But the evidence for that happening as often as it is said to have happened is not really there. And it's become a, I guess, a, a fairly common trope that all Vietnam veterans were very badly treated when they got home. That's not necessarily the case. There's layers to it. And we have a, an entity called the um, RSL, the Return Services League. A lot of Vietnam veterans who tried to join their local sub-branch of the RSL were, if not shunned, were not welcomed by veterans of earlier wars. So you might have World War One and World War Two men who are dismissive of the Vietnam experience. You know, there wasn't Poziers, there wasn't El Alamein, there wasn't Bullecourt. There was nothing like that for the Australians in Vietnam. It was a very different kind of war. And the older generation of soldiers didn't grasp this 
And so weren't as welcoming of Vietnam veterans who they considered hadn't been in a real war. And so there are layers to the way veterans were received, depending whether it's an individual or as a group with the RSL, as the example I just gave. They were the first Australian soldiers to come home from a war that we hadn't won. They came home over 10 years. So a tour would be 12 months. So you'd go 12 months. If you survive, you'd come home. So there were many cohorts of veterans coming back over time. There wasn't sort of one mask homecoming at the end of the war as there was with the First and Second World War. And as the commitment petered out, there was never going to be anything like that. So veterans felt perhaps that they hadn't got the same respect that First and Second World War and even Korean men had got. There are stories of them being mistreated, and some undoubtedly were. It was a bit more subtle, a bit more nuanced than the idea that they were all spat on and they were all reviled. It wasn't quite like that. And there's also the fact that common to return soldiers in many wars that people couldn't understand what they'd been through. It was very hard for people to grasp what had happened to them in Vietnam. And so you have these men often very much changed from the man who left trying to fit back into society. And of course, that can't have been easy for many of them and for many of their families. So coming home was difficult for many Vietnam veterans, and many of them held on to bitterness, many still do, about the way they were treated when they got home. They were made to feel very much better in 1987, when Australia threw a massive series of welcome home parades for Vietnam veterans. This is 12 years after the war ended, and Australia left that war in 1972-73. But there were massive, massive marches, certainly through some of the capital cities, very well attended by crowds of people, welcoming back these men now in their 40s and 50s. And a lot of Vietnam veterans said, now we feel accepted, now we feel that we're home. And in 1992, a Vietnam War Memorial was unveiled on Anzac Parade in Canberra. Anzac Parade is the street that leads up to the War Memorial. And on each side of the parade, there are memorials to many conflicts and campaigns. And the Vietnam veterans finally got theirs in 1992. And that was another step in what many of them saw as sort of healing and a sort of reconciliation and an acceptance. But, you know, we're talking decades after the war now. I think it's interesting to look at the reception because referring back again to your book about World War One and the veterans in Wagga, you described the rival parades in one instance eager to welcome the troops home. Essentially, the people who went to Vietnam were probably the grandkids of those first Australian military pioneers. So by this time, with the First World War, the Second World War, and then Vietnam, had there developed a culture of military families in Australia? Certainly when I speak to them, one of the first questions I ask any veteran is, is there a tradition of military service in your family? A lot of Vietnam guys had a grandfather who was in World War One, a father who was in World War Two, or uncles or other relatives and went into uniform sort of to keep a tradition of service going. That's not the case for everybody, but it's certainly an influential thing in Australia. A lot of families trace their military ancestry. There was a thing back in the 80s, 1988, around the centenary, when it was a really big deal if you could find a convict in your family history. But very few Australians really can do that. But a lot of Australians can find a military veteran in their yeah. family. There's a certain pride in that for a lot of people. What would you say the legacy of the Vietnam War is specifically in Australia, as opposed to in Vietnam or indeed the United States? I think it's important from the Australian point of view, to understand that the Australian experience of the war was very different to the American experience of the war. 
And a lot of Australians to this day take their understanding of Vietnam from American popular culture. And our popular culture concerning Vietnam is far thinner. We have a couple of movies. We had some television miniseries in the 80s. But a lot of Australians still think that the way the war is portrayed as an American experience relates to the Australian experience. And they were very, very different. In 1965, we sent an infantry battalion to Vietnam and it was integrated with a United States airborne unit. And they fought alongside the Americans through 1965. And it was a battalion of regular soldiers, no conscripts. And they were quite shocked at the American methods. Firstly, you hear a lot of Australians when they arrived in Vietnam just being astonished at the sheer might of the American war machine. Someone told me a saying once that the United States Navy has its own army, which has its own air force, and they're all bigger than ours. And I'm sure that applied for these guys in Vietnam. And so you have people arriving at Tansom Nod Airport and seeing just the sheer scale of the American effort within an hour of arriving and being astonished by the size and the might of what America could bring to bear on a military campaign. They also found that that fed into the way the Americans operated. So Australia took their experience of counterinsurgency operations from Malaya, and they had particular ways of doing it, small, stealthy patrols, going out into the bush, trying to remain undetected. And they found that the Americans did not follow that approach, that theirs was a weight of fire being noisy and trying to draw the enemy into battle. The Australians didn't operate that way. And so after a year of having a battalion working with the Americans, the Australian military decided that really the only way they would be able to fight effectively in Vietnam was to have their own area of operations, doing things their own way. And so Australia was given Phuc Toi province in the south of Vietnam near Saigon as its area of operations. And most Australians who served in Vietnam served in that province. And so we were able to fight the war according to Australian doctrines and methods and were quite effective in that province. But Australians still, to this day, I think, understand it as more of an American-type war. But the Australians did not fight that way. We didn't have the problems with drugs that the Americans had. Our big problem in Vietnam was alcohol, not heroin or marijuana or other illicit drugs. Alcohol was the main concern. We also didn't have the racial problems that the Americans had in Vietnam. So it was a very different sort of war for us, but it was always fought alongside Americans. And again, Australians, they were astonished, I think, at the generosity of many Americans. A lot of Australian nurses, for example, arrived in Vietnam with very little, were given a lot of equipment by Americans very generously. And, and that went on throughout the war. But they were also sometimes astonished by the cruelty of some Americans towards the Vietnamese people. And so there was a mixed view of what the Americans were bringing to that war and what people understand as the Australian experience isn't necessarily reflective of what it was really like for Australians in Vietnam. Vietnam changed Australia in some interesting ways. And one of those ways was the sheer number of Americans who ended up coming to Sydney for R&R. It changed the shape of Sydney's King's Cross, the sort of red light district of Sydney. Suddenly you had restaurants changing their names. So, you know, you'd go from, you know, Uncle Harry's pie shop or whatever to the beefsteak and bourbon or they would give things American names and Americans were welcomed in Sydney. Some of them would stay with Australian families. Some of them would go on farm visits. Many, many of them never left King's Cross. They were looked after by volunteer organizations. A range of experiences were open to Americans, but Americans were then also in some ways held responsible for introducing hard drugs. 
to the King's Cross area of Sydney. It had effects on Australia that were, I think, unanticipated, I guess, as any war is. And that's one of the ways. And as I said earlier, in the post-war period, the number of refugees from Indochina changed the shape of some Australian suburbs and changed certain aspects of our culture, even if it seems as sort of shallow as the way we eat, the restaurants we have, the integration of certain Asian cultural mores into Australian suburbs. And so there are parts of Australian cities now that are sort of known as Vietnamese areas or Cambodian areas. And for many of us, including myself, it's been a, a really enriching experience for this country. It was also a time when a lot of young Australians for the first time went to another place, went to Asia and experienced an Asian culture. And that affected a lot of veterans. A lot of them came back with a, a deep fondness for Vietnam. Many of them have gone back and there are Australian veterans of the war who run charities now in Vietnam and others who've retired there and gone to live there and found friendship among people who, you know, once they would have been shooting at each other. So the war, it had an impact not only on the veterans, but it had a broader impact on Australian society as well.